everybody, it's Brady here from Inner Strength Check, rolling dice and playing games for personal growth and social change. And without further ado, let's get into it. So here we are. This is going to be uh, sort of my inaugural episode of sorts. I'm not going to lie in the wake of lockdown and my own mental health trajectory over the last year, the effects of the pandemic, the impact of work, everything, uh, some issues with perfectionism, all that sort of stuff. This has been a long time coming. I have actually really struggled to get the inertia or the momentum going to even make an episode. And I have a number of of reasons why behind that but I guess I just wanted to kind of congratulate myself for finally actually sitting down and hitting record so I'm new to this whole podcasting business obviously the sound quality is you know it's okay might leave a little bit to be desired with all the echo in the background but um, we'll get through it so there's been a few reasons that I've left the pod on silent um One of them is something that I think that I'm going to get into at much greater length in future, and that's called uh, what I'd like to call perfectionism is procrastination. When people think of perfectionism, they think of uh, someone following someone around the house, picking up all the crumbs off the floor behind them or shuffling their pens and pencils or, you know, spending hours creating something details oriented, like a number of spreadsheets or what have you. And yeah, sure, that is the kind of classically thought of um, way in which perfectionism can express itself. However, it's actually more commonly expressed as procrastination. And the underlying driver behind that is usually things like unrealistically high standards or unrealistically high arbitrary standards one might have about themselves, low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, um, some unhelpful schema and belief systems about oneself, um, some pretty negative self-fulfilling prophecies. So you can actually be quite a, um, what society would deem as quote unquote, lazy, unproductive, or what have you, and still harbor some very perfectionistic standards about yourself. And that's something that I think we're going to talk a fair bit about in this podcast, because this podcast is focused on mental health and gaming. And I don't think, and gaming and hobbies in general, I should say, and I don't think people realize Sorry, that's not Rona. I don't think people realize the extent to which even just trying to enter into casual hobbies or casual hobbies, let alone ones with more involved um, learning curves like musicianship, uh, tabletop role playing, you know, learning a new skill, how much those can be impacted by things like that. Very simple things like, for instance, a podcast. So that's been kind of something that I've been dealing with uh, personally and therapeutically and existentially. And for me to actually sit here and just be blabbing away here with nothing but a few dot points in my notebook, which you'll probably hear me rifling through as we go because I can't guarantee quality to begin with. This is a huge thing for me to be to, to be sat down and actually talking is massive and um i am one to very very often denigrate or downplay my successes but you know what i'm proud that i'm here today okay four minutes in and we've got one dot point (laughs) but the other thing is that um so in the last year or so i've discovered that i have a diagnosis of inattentive type adhd adult adhd uh formerly known of as add so the real daydreamy head in clouds sort and um one of the things with that is um dr ross barkley mentions it in his books and some of his talks that the belief that um, due to the neurological deficits of untreated adhd in the frontal lobe uh, adult adhd is actually primarily a misperception of um, time blindness and performance so what that means is that when it comes time to the crunch and when it comes to the crunch and there's something such as say a podcast episode, um, individuals with executive dysfunctioning issues will either extremely overstate and catastrophize the amount of work that may or may not have to go into it, or they may heavily downplay it and all the time involved. For instance, I'm sitting here right now thinking consciously, this isn't so bad, but I'm sure when I get to the editing stage, I'm going to wish I was never born, but, um, well, made my bed, go lay in it. These are the things we apparently do for fun. So yeah, um, a lot of anxiety and catastrophizing and, and just all sorts of psychological hangups around getting started, but 
here we are. And I think I'm getting, so I live in Melbourne in Australia, if you can't tell by my slightly Bogan accent or I don't know, maybe, maybe not. I've lived halfway across the East coast. So I've probably picked up a bit here and there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've recently been through a, a pretty rough last few years. I've had a lot of burnout, um, a lot of cyclic depressive episodes, a lot of mixed episodes. So what I mean by that is that I also have a diagnosis of uh, bipolar disorder, which can involve, it's less what people would think of uh, the word when they hear it less, oh my God, he, she has these mood swings. Oh my God, they're so bipolar. Bipolar is a series of very long-term affective states where um, your general physiological functioning and your general emotional lability and mood are kept in sort of mostly in one major holding pattern that usually being either very downtrodden and depressed or very energized and um, stimulated and just unable to focus and that sort of thing, which as you can imagine, going hand in hand with ADHD is not a fun time. But um, recently I've, I've discovered and what I've kind of gleaned from others' experiences is that over time, those episodes are becoming less clear cut and more mixed, which is real dangerous because you've got this, it's just a, it, it's essentially a frenetic manic depression all at once and it's not fun. And I've just come kind of out of the arse end of one of those episodes earlier this year and a bit of a prolonged, some prolonged depression over the past few years for sure. Um, And that covered, coupled with just the general lack of environmental stimulation, you know, from the effects of being in the world's most locked down city. Look, we had to do what we had to do, right? I won't get too much into that, but the, the downward effect on that, I think, is that it had had an unprecedented effect on mine and other people's motivations. And um, I actually find, I actually found during lockdown and even right now, even the things as simple as making a cup of coffee or, you know, washing up or what have you, even if I'm not feeling that kind of physiological fatigue or that, um, you know, just down mood, that low mood or that lethargy or anything of depression or, or that intense anxiety that just the the capacity for me at the moment to actually do simple tasks is just it's it's interesting how much I just have this barrier where I'm on the outside looking and going all right come on time to do it time to do it so I've had this general like stymied stymied nature of my behaviors being really thwarted in general um, even though I'm actually feeling a fair sight better now than I was a week, two weeks, a month, six months, a year, two years, three years ago. Um, I was pretty fucked going into the pandemic, to be honest. I was pretty burnt out and depressed. So <laughs> it's been it's been a bit of a time, but um, as you can imagine, yeah, it's been a bit of a time, but um, here, survived, I'm safe. I'm grateful for that. And um, things have really kind of swung the other direction in terms of my good fortune. So um, no shade on, on the work that I do. I really do enjoy doing rewarding work. And I've had a great employer that's held space for me for a long time. But um, in my current work, uh, I've recently received news that I have um, a new role coming up. And it's actually something in a sector that I've really been interested in. I've really been interested in getting back to working in for many, many, many years, almost a decade. And that's in the um, youth mental health space. So maybe I will talk a bit about that in the nature of my work, um, being a qualified social worker by trade. But I guess with that and finally having a splint removed from my finger. um, So I knocked, I'm, I'm uncoordinated. Again, going back due to the whole executive dysfunction thing, I'm pretty clumsy as a result. And um, my motor cortex and my frontal lobe don't often don't line up and I'm pretty clunky and clumsy. And um, I smacked my finger on something, don't know what, but it basically snapped an extensor on my middle finger. And I've had to wear funky looking splints for half the year, but they're off now. So I've got full use of my right hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the jokes out of your system. Anyway, um, so with that and the prospect of a new job and coming out of lockdown, and I think, you know, all those sorts of things have made it kind of a confluence of, uh, and I, you know, after spending so long indoors, just 
with that real depressive, pessimistic thought that this is my lot in life, you know? This is where I am. I'm just coasting along. I'm in lockdown. I can't do X, Y, Z. And I imagine it's the same for many others out there, but just a very prospect, even if you don't want to, because I think since lockdown has ended, a lot of us have just gone, nah. I mean, it's cool that we want to and we can, um, but there's still some caution there with the number of cases, but also... Yeah, motivation itself is a bit fleeting, which is the very fact that I've been able to do simple things like um, I went out a few weeks ago, which I don't do very often at all unless it's for a gig. Um, I've gone back to the gym. I've been super, super paranoid in all of those occasions, but I got there, back out there. So life is kind of re-escalating back up to a a point of normality that, um, you know, it's kind of strange. It's a strange space. We've got very high cases, but we've got this uh, notion that things are returning to to pre-pandemic usual life. And I think the pandemic has actually been great in some respect. Well, it hasn't been great at all. I shouldn't say that. But one thing that's come out of it, I think, is that there's been this kind of shared understanding and experience of, of mental health and, and things like executive dysfunction. I mean, lockdowns have affected us all in that way so i think there is an increased literacy and conversation around things like mental health and and other issues that have really really come to the fore so yeah um disqualifying when i said that the pandemic was good in any way but that was kind of a an okay unintended um side effect and of the pandemic so you know that's one of the reasons that I mean, I've wanted to do a podcast for years. It's just been confidence and self-esteem and things like that. But um, yeah, as we get out there back into our normal quote-unquote lives, I think there's... Um, so with the um, with the brain, we, we won't get too much into it, but um, of course you can, look, you can point at things like uh, depression and anxiety versus being stable or motivated or what have you. But... Um, There are two sort of basic systems, uh, and this is more of a cognitive approach, is that there's the um, behavioral inhibition system and the behavioral activation system. And there's some theories around that, such as um, the broaden and build theory and some cognitive theories around spreading activation. Basically what I mean is not to the point of burnout really, but the more that you've got going on or the more that you're kind of involved with and or the more environmental stimulation you have around you. So not being at home and only seeing the Amazon and Uber Eats guy within a given week, actually being outside and performing basic tasks, you know, oh, I've got to go to Bunnings to get this. Um, All that sort of stuff has, to a reasonable degree, uh, an activating effect. So much in the same way that anxiety can generalize from I'm really, really worried about exams to, oh God, my budget and, you know, spreads out in that sort of ethereal cloud of worrying about everything where we normally wouldn't need to, or normally isn't evolutionarily or situationally appropriate. We actually can have similar inhibition and activation on um, our daily functioning and lives. So I think that kind of stands to reason as to how I've actually been able to start this episode. And what's this episode about? Well, look, this is a two-pronged kind of podcast, I guess. I am talking a lot about the the virtue, the valor, and the fun, and the self-exploration, and insight, and all sorts of other things that we can get from hobbies and leisure in a day and age of productivity obsession and going back to perfectionism you know uh, a, a world of economic meritocracy where we're with a destabilized job and housing markets where we've all been sort of led down the road of if we don't we're not in a position of advantage we just need to work 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 harder 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 And I think even since the inception of this podcast and very recently, there's been a bit of a growing conversation about how relaxation can be productive, how engaging in hobbies can be productive, and it is. Um, And I do want to sort of highlight that hobbies and leisure do have that kind of, I guess you could say, you know, um, 
productive aspect to them, but that's not the primary aim. The primary aim is to show that, to give, uh, yeah, I guess a bit of pride and um, fun, lightheartedness, but also serious weight to the things that we do outside of work because we're complex beings that are in complex biopsychosocial and socioeconomic and political and geographic environments. Yeah. Like we drum ourselves up often with occupation as the primary thing. When we meet someone, we talk about education or that that's what we lead with. And that's fine, I guess, but I'm really here to demonstrate the, the value of, um, simply incorporating more fun and more meaningful activity into our lives because I think a lot of us are sort of kind of leaving this and totally understandable under the under the capitalist heel of you know a casualized workforce that wants to squeeze more and more widgets out of every person I'm kind of here to demonstrate that hey the things you're doing in your off time whatever those may be or things that you may have wanted to get into, but you may not be feeling it right now. Okay, so how do you navigate that and actually get involved with those sorts of things? What's something that you'd wanted, you've always wanted to pick up or you've wanted to pick up again, but you have this perception that I'm just too tired or what have you. Um, or you just got a keen interest in, in something that is, yeah, something additional. You're feeling a, a, a pull towards maybe I want to do a little bit more than just go to work and watch Netflix or what have you. I'm kind of here to essentially just talk around that and my experiences with it and intertwine this narrative of mental health and recovery. So obviously um, I'm very open about my mental illness, which is one of the symptoms of the mental illness really. Um, Yes. Oversharing. get used to it because there'll be a lot of it (laughs) but i think we can't separate our mental health from the context of even leisure and fun at least not anymore not when so much of us are uh, in a position of disempowerment disadvantage and uh, lack of access to opportunity and when so much of us uh, so much of us so much of us so many of us are experiencing you know widespread difficulty entering the job market and things like that we do need a rounded approach to our lives, but also I'm not here to imply that uh, hobbies themselves are a form of uh, holistic therapy. I am here to actually marry that up with some, I guess, personal experience, some discourse and some maybe, you know, maybe some tips and things around mental health and recovery. But I want to be talking more from an advocacy point of view with mental health. I think if you want... 12 life hacks that'll improve your brain. You can just go to YouTube and type brain life hacks and you'll find a hundred dudes in Abercrombie and Fitch shirts running down a beach in LA telling you basic operant conditioning concepts from psychology to quote unquote hack your brain. And I think that most of us are mental health and psychology, psychological theory literate enough to, for that to be a bit blase. So This might come across as a bit of a mess of uh, a podcast conceptually, and it is, and that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly in line with my um, way of thinking and of being, which is why it's taken me 20 minutes to get to the point. Thing is, is that has been, that point of comparison has been a real bugbear for me, and I felt bad about it, and I've not hit record because I haven't really kind of owned the the facets of myself that are actually advantageous with the way that I'm wired so I'm kind of not there yet but um that's beside the point for today so today what I thought was uh pertinent to do was to actually set the scene and to set the scene less so with those topics um less so with the broader concepts of mental health or recovery or hobbies or leisure and more actually to drill down and introduce my mental health trajectory, my recovery trajectory, my neurodiversity trajectory, I guess you could call it. So this is going to get pretty Dr. Phil. This is going to get pretty on the couch. So I will be kind of recounting 
it's going to feel a little bit and possibly like a psychosocial assessment, but I figured that in doing a podcast where I'm talking a lot about, um, things like empowerment, social role, valorization, recovery, all those sorts of fuzzy concepts that you've got to practice what you preach. And I can't profess to be a clinical psychologist. I can't profess to be a psychiatrist. I can't profess to be much more than just little old me. But instead of whacking you over the head with a hundred million intellectualized theories and concepts, I thought that I would go a little bit more personal with it and a little bit sort of, I guess, rawer with it and discuss my kind of trajectory uh, and my recovery journey. Because I actually think that right now, as of today, where I'm sitting, this is possibly the first time in years that I've felt anything edging towards a state of recovery. And I really want to kind of harness that moment. So where do we start? Well, we can start right from the start. So I was born in 1989. So I'm, I don't know, what would you call that? Mid, late millennial. I was born three months premature. So premature birth, especially at such a young sort of such as that level, that magnitude is a huge risk factor for all sorts of physical and, um, psychological or neurological neurological and physical and other health abnormalities I actually got off relatively scot-free considering the fact that I was immediately ripped from my mother's arms and put in an incubator for god knows how long there's a picture of me which I probably won't post to the blog but I'm small in the size of a teddy bear and I'm massively underweight and just covered in tubes uh, very much if we were living in an era where medical technology couldn't facilitate it, um, you know, carrying me through that, I would have died, definitely. Um, and as a very young infant and toddler, I had a lot of uh, intense physiotherapy and OT style work, which I don't remember because I was too young. Um, but that did not stop me from being quiet, you know uncoordinated, which again, actually goes back to the ADHD stuff. That's actually quite a common facet of that. Um, and that's due to some interactions with the frontal lobe and the, um, motor neuron cortex, but we won't go into that. Essentially what had happened was that I'd been raised, I guess, this is the tricky part. This is why we talk a lot about things like invisible disability now and why it took someone who's done two psychology degrees and social work degree and has been working in mental health since 2008 until he was 32 to realize, oh, wait, actually, I think I might have this going on. Um, there are so many compensatory mechanisms that a lot of neurodiverse um, and mentally ill persons from a very young age can develop. And that's just, um, that's just testament to our ability and our capacity to thrive, honestly, but it also means a lot can be masked. So what do I mean by that? Moving on from the kind of infantile stage, which many would argue that I haven't gotten past at uh, 32 years of age, but, uh, that's another story for another day. As a kid, I was extremely bright. Now I know I'm blowing my own horn there. I sucked at certain things like maths. In fact, I was actually diagnosed with a maths computation disorder, which is interesting. Again, at age 32, which is, mm, take from that what you will. But otherwise, very bright kid. Honestly, like the my ability to read at an extremely early age and um, very quick to pick up on conceptual information, naming conventions. I mean, I was naming and like spelling dinosaurs at an age that was ridiculous, you know, just soaking up information from like a sponge. Again, you could relate that back to the, um, the way in which I am wired. Um, but we won't get too much into that. I had a very, um, I had an upbringing that's where, uh, a love of science and a love of learning was very highly encouraged. So with that encouragement, you know, came dopamine. With that dopamine came interest and the, and, and the cycle continues. I, but I think um, 
a lot of folks that are born neurodiverse have a natural openness to experience and not that others who don't have those issues don't but i think that's actually one of the side um kind of almost benefits of having that executive dysfunction is that you've literally taken the floodgates back the gating mechanism the the frontal lobe itself acts as a acts as an arbiter of judgment and control um and if you don't have that you're just walking around like wow you know i actually do believe that um the way that in which my uh brain is strangely and fuzzily wired actually allows me to have more of a a sensory sort of a, a sense of wonder about the world um it also means that in the absence of that kind of gating mechanism that a lot gets taken on board and it's very 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 easy for me to burn out and we'll get more into that later but um yeah as a kid i was very curious very intellectually curious pretty creative did a lot of drawing and art and things like that again those were things that were encouraged in the household um i was extremely socially anxious at school extremely i was bullied a lot uh especially because of due to said love of science that and things like that uh, that obviously came out in the class. I was often branded teacher's pet or whatnot. Um, extremely introverted, very socially anxious, um, and a big daydreamer and real difficulty picking up on social cues and, and keeping up with them. Um, a lot of issues with impulsivity, like trying not to butt in <laughs> in the middle of a conversation or really trying to focus attention when people are talking as long as I'm talking now. But, um, and just horribly unco, horribly unco. I mean, I was so denigrated at school for how unco I was. Jesus Christ. I mean, thinking about sport at school gives me, gives me PTSD. I don't even want to talk about it, man. It was bad. Thankfully, I had a lot of stuff on the side. Like I'd be regularly bike riding, would be going to the beach, loved the beach. Um, mum's a huge nature fan, so lots of opportunities to get out into nature which is a very stimulating environment for kids and a very stimulating environment for people in general and there's actually quite a number of good research articles on that topic uh, nature itself actually activates um down regulates a lot more of your voluntary attention processes and uh, increases involuntary attention because you've got more things to attend to and that actually has a down-regulating impact on things like anxiety and whatnot. So there is actually quite a, there's a yeah, there's, there's quite a virtue to having um, nature in your environment. And right now, uh, the part of Melbourne that I live in, I'm pretty much not even in Melbourne. And I'm out in the kind of the sticks and I'm looking out to farmland right now. And it's giving me that kind of, yeah, that sort of nice downward um, nature, man. That's why people are hippies about nature. That's that's the mechanism behind it. One of many mechanisms. We're not here to talk about nature or bush therapy, but perhaps that can be a, a topic for another time. Might even go into you know things like the neuroscience of it um, and the ecology um, of yeah that sort of stuff. Okay, so we've very much determined that it's very easy for me to get tangential and off track. So. <laughs> I think growing up as a kid in the 90s, I grew up in a context where unfortunately the kind of today's conspiratorial language around big pharma was actually kind of warranted, especially with regards to the zeal that um, ADHD was ADD back in the day and ADHD was being um, diagnosed to children and marketed and things like that. I think a combination of less mental health literacy, less uh, everyday knowledge around things like diversity and invisible disability and the impacts of um, things such as frontal lobe functioning or dysfunctioning on broad generalizable aspects of one's well-being and the fact that um, kids such as myself could come across as extremely bright in some senses in school and very, very, very not bright with things like following basic instructions, doing practical tasks, you know, that real 
I was always called an absent-minded professor, and I'm sure that a lot of people who um, have had struggles with their overall functioning as they grow up doesn't have to be ADHD, it could be or bipolar, it could be any number of things. Um, I'm sure you've probably been branded the same. And um, there was a lot of anti-psychiatry rhetoric in the 90s, so I do not blame anyone, for, number one, for not picking up on quote-unquote ADD because it's nigh on imperceptible for most people until I think the average age of diagnosis for males is 31. I was diagnosed at age 31. So I was lucky that it was kind of caught, I guess. Um, So I was always a daydreamer, always a daydreamer. I'd be in class and my head would just be floating outwards and I just thought, you know, that was normal. That's what happens in school. Schools, even unless it's an exciting subject, that's what school is. Um, going into my teen years, having a backlog of being that kind of, oh yeah, you know, he's always the one answering questions about that, 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 and seems super, you know, to a, to an almost savant, not savant, maybe the idiot part, (laughs) but savant extent of just answering, just keenly answering questions in class. You know, I often got, um, branded as teacher's pet or, you know, nerd, whatever, uh, and the public high school I went to was fucking rough. I was, I started, I was getting the shit kicked out of me first week of school, you know, and just constantly taunted and teased. Um, yeah, we won't go too much into my public high school experience. Suffice to say, um, it was a survival experience and it was not good. Um, yeah, lots of bullying, lots and lots and lots of bullying, And, um, I kind of straddled some interesting camps. So I think with the school that we were in, it covered such a wide catchment and a broad sort of socioeconomic spectrum, mostly on the lower to lower middle end of the socioeconomic spectrum that kind of, so I myself grew up in a a single parent family. So my mom, my sister, who I love and I miss right now, one of them's way off in an island in the middle of nowhere and one of them's two states away well interstate use your maths Brady but um yeah so I I was kind of born in that sort of you know parent on welfare raising kids so that position of kind of socioeconomic disadvantage so by virtue of that schooling environment and having that experience I clicked well with folks in a similar situation but also having that kind of intellectual sort of geeky, you know, what have you, just being a nerd, just being a nerd in general, um, kind of clicked with the nerd group. So sort of this, and that's, that I think perpetuates today. Today I've got like, I think I'm about 50% nerd, 50% bogan. (laughs) I'm sitting here in thongs with a scraggly beard talking about tabletop role-playing, you know? So there you go. But, um, oh man, totally forgot that I can just press pause to take a piss. There we go. There's the bogan coming out. Take a piss, mate. So yeah, where were we? So teen years, teen years. So yep, lots of bullying, blah, blah, blah. Um, still doing well at school, uh, hanging out with some, you know, I'm hanging out with a mix of everyone kind of morphing into this strange bogan geek hybrid that I continue to be today. Um, loved surfing it's funny uh when i was a teenager mum mentioned a prepubescent mum mentioned you know you you're growing boy you're about to come into puberty and you're going to have this absolute vesuvian amount of energy and it's funny that if i think about it because although i was kind of diagnosed adult inattentive type adhd i think i definitely have a lot of that h in there and i would always just be walking walking the dogs i would I would ride 10 kilometers to the beach, surf six hours, eat some hot chips, surf again, ride the bike home, and then do something like mow the lawn. And I can't even fathom doing half of that today. But I just had this internal motor. And much like the anxiety and the mood swings and the kind of what what people would say was the black cloud that started developing in my mid-teens... I think a lot of that was attributed to uh, teen hormones, you know, boys will be boys, hormones, all that sort of stuff. 
And you're right. And it was intense then, but it's actually more intense now as an adult than it was then, just with slightly less energy. So yeah, my energy levels really peaked in, um, in my teen years. And also the disparity between my capacity to, I guess, perform well in more conceptually intellectual areas like English, history, science, geography, whatever, and, you know, technical, uh, and coordination and practically focused things like woodwork, cooking, um, PE, sport. I sucked at all those and got ripped on a fair bit for that. Um, not that that's gotten any better. So, (laughs) but, um, around my mid teens, I'd been working for McDonald's for a while and I was working weekends and then going to school, working weekends and then going to school. Um, I probably shouldn't have done that, but I, I remember starting to experience like a real lack of sleep, a real lack of sleep. And this is pre-smartphones, pre-social media. So, you know, um, and yeah, I had a computer in my room, but I wouldn't game past like, you know, I'd be conking out at 10, 11, whatever. And something I'm really intensely jealous of to this day. But um, I started getting some insomnia and I remember we went to the doctor and we got some sleeping pills for it. Um, I started getting real moodiness, like real moodiness, like people would be like, man, you need to chill out. And it's just, it's just funny, the, uh, not funny, but I guess, yeah, a, a lot of it you would attribute to hormonal teenage behavior, you know angry guy always walking around super pissed off and i think as an australian male growing up in the 2000s it was it's still that kind of time where the socially normative thing to do with feelings of sadness and guilt um, and depression and anxiety is to just unconsciously funnel that like a waste gate into aggression so i had a lot of aggression um which I primarily turned, I think, inward, but I think I found heavy metal music really helpful in that respect. And we're going to talk at length about metal and heavy music, music in general, because I think looking back now, I realized that it, it had a huge down-regulating effect, a positive down-regulating effect on that emotional turmoil and that physical just... But also, I think conceptually and intellectually, there's a lot in heavy metal music that people miss, I think, because it it started off in the Satanic Panic era and a lot of the older, especially like death and black metal bands, kind of used the trope of uh, evil Satan to, you know, scare boomers, basically. Boomers scaring boomers. Um, But I think a lot of what gets missed is the kind of intellectual and I'd say almost spiritual aspects of um heavy metal and the music and that sort of stuff so look i've always been into a broad range of things but that couldn't have come at a better time in my life and it's carried me through to this day it's made me the person i am it's helped keep me where i'm at it's i'm not joking when i would say that it's essentially my key my life force um but we will talk at length a lot about um musicianship music listening uh, listening habits music communities experiences of recovery through music uh, and all that sort of stuff music's going to be i think i've downplayed the impact and the importance of music for this podcast but it's going to be huge um but yeah so i got into that i was into surfing you know also also playing heaps of halo on crt tvs you know hook up four xboxes at your mate's house and oh let's let's watch dude where's my car and then um oh let's play halo like let's be sick bro um so yeah and then (laughs) and then around the time mid 2000s i discovered goon and i'm not going to say anything more about that Suffice to say, um, I was fortunate enough that I was actually thinking of leaving high school, like dropping out and just doing an apprenticeship, um, whether or not that would have been fortuitous in this day and age, probably I might've actually been better than going to uni, who knows? But, um, at that time, probably not the best, but I, um, 
nearly dropped out of school because it was the bullying was so severe and I was just what I now recognize experiencing chronic anxiety and depression um so basically the nascent start of my um bipolar disorder which took a very long time to sort of disentangle from other things but anyway so that's 2006 2007 you know that's when hardcore and deathcore and emo and all that sort of stuff came along so I was a bit of a scene kid for that that sort of stuff I saw Parkway Drive at the YMCA a few times you know um and just surfing heaps and uh when I when time came to go to uni this is the thing we were all raised in this millennial generation in this generation we were raised by people who had uh I think statistically it's 170 percent more affordable housing than before a much more secure job market were really raised uh, in their coming of age in that hyper capitalist american 80s reaganomics you know you can do anything you want kind of um that kind of rhetoric and discourse around economic meritocracy which is the idea that the amount of widgets of hours you plug in equals amount of dollars gained which we're going to have a lot of lengthy discussions around that and how number one that's problematic and number two it's statistically and empirically not true these days so on that note i think a lot of us were raised with that kind of mindset of you know you just apply yourself and you can be anything you want so um i think a lot of our parents especially my parent who you know would want for better for me and my family um and my friends and everyone's oh you're so smart you're so smart yeah but that was behind such a veil of dysfunction um we're talking going back before about let's say mcdonald's i mean I've, i've worked for every retail giant there is and in kitchens and done laboring and all sorts of all sorts of stuff you know i've done grunt work i've done my time with it i remember one time actually when I started at McDonald's, and this would have been 2004, 2005, I just wasn't getting it. I wasn't getting the order in which you put the condiments on a fucking cheeseburger or a Big Mac. I actually had to draw it out and do it bit by bit. And my boss had to watch over my shoulder and I was still stuffing it up. I'm talking like, you know, do the sauce, then the onions, then the pig. I'd be standing there just horrified and people would be yelling at me and saying oh you're a shit worker what are you doing oh come on i distinctly remember and this was one of the things that actually led to me exploring the adhd diagnosis process because here's a guy that you know has been pumped up his whole life on oh yeah you're academic you're smart you're bright blah blah blah, all this conceptual stuff then i get a job at maccas and i can't put a burger together i can't put it back because my brain just it gets halfway through the process of three of the ingredients and then that's it. It's forgotten again and it didn't matter how many times I... And so more than once I was pulled aside. What's going on? Are you okay? And I remember, I'll never forget this. One of the managers said, has anyone ever diagnosed you with a learning disability? And I remember that hit me like a hammer. I thought, I I thought this. Um, I lacked a lot of confidence even more confidence than that I do now. And I had no assertiveness skills like I sort of have now. And I was like, what? Learning disability? I felt like saying, I felt like bringing my school report cards and going, um, have a look, sweetie. But the thing is, is that she was right. It was that practical working memory focused intelligence, which is a form of intelligence unto itself that I was severely lacking in. And, you know, friends of mine, you had a lot of friends that were in trades, a lot of friends in apprenticeships and stuff, and they'd, they'd see me do, doing stuff, or mum would see me doing chores, and everyone would just be like, what the, what are you doing? Like, seriously? Anyway, the digression of that from the topic is that I think as a millennial and as a neurodiverse person, university seemed the right option because it was harnessing that... Um, intellectual capacity which more than made up for you know things that i liked like being functional (laughs) so i did well at um the high school certificate which is you know if you're in victoria vcal or whatever it is and op or something whatever it is for queensland i can't remember funnily enough it's like i have some sort of memory issue 
So 2007 to 2011, that's when I moved to the Sunshine Coast. And I'll tell you my logic for going to uni. So uh, every single degree that I picked for my selections was journalism and communications. And the only one that wasn't was uh, the one that I ended up doing, which was psychology and business. And I actually looked up the Sunshine Coast. I literally Googled. This is when you were starting to Google stuff instead of just believing what someone said at a party and going, huh. And then later going and searching it and going, wait a minute. And then uh, ping them on MSN being like, dude, what the fuck? Um, What's the furthest I can get away from Coffs Harbour, my hometown, uh, that still has surf? Funnily enough, Sunshine Coast. I thought, okay, cool, cool. One of my mates from school was already up there and I I got the offer. I got the offer all over the place. Got the offer in Melbourne. I was like, what? It's too far away. It's like another planet. I'm not going to Melbourne. Um, got office in Sydney. Thank God I didn't go there. Sorry, no shade on Sydney friends. It's not for me. And then I, yeah, ended up on the Sunshine Coast, which is sort of another regional surfy coastal town. So I continued my surfy bogan slash nerd antics, much more on the bogan end of things. Um, look, one of the cornerstones of things like ADHD and bipolar is... Uh, it really lends itself handily to substance use slash abuse, uh, especially binging. Now, for the most part, I'd consider myself actually being a pretty good boy in that respect. However, when it came to alcohol, oh boy, oh boy, yep, yep, yep. We don't need to go too far into that. Suffice to say that without being a functional alcoholic, I think if you saw me at any party in between 2005 to say 2013, it was a mess, absolute mess. And part of that was getting into the uni student culture. Part of that was getting into, part of that was just being, a, I don't know, a bogan. Yeah, mate, go it, charge it, mate, charge it. Part of that was a, a poor coping attempt on my behalf. But again, pretty common in Australian culture, (laughs) like for students and for anyone. Um, But a lot of that was also masking some some things that were coming up. So, I mean, my time at USC, University of Sunshine Coast, 2007 to 2010, some of the best times of my life. But that's when I really started struggling with anxiety. I really started struggling with um, being able to keep up with a self-directed learning pace. I really started struggling with my functioning in general. Um, So I dropped my business major because I was idealistic and like, oh man, businessman. I I did marketing. I remember doing marketing going, I can't conscientiously continue with this degree. Um, I would have been good in marketing, but yeah, I don't know. I'm too idealistic to my peril, but I dropped business and I started doing psychology. And I remember just after I dropped business, someone told me, oh, you know that psychology, if you want to be a psychologist, it takes you six years and like, you've got to do a bunch of degrees, right? And I was like, what? And then I looked it up and I'm okay. So anyway, that sucked. And I think that led to a lot of anxiety. And that's when I started going to a school counselor. So I started seeing a psychologist for the first time of many, 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 many times. And I was sort of tentatively diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, which is something I definitely do have and struggle with, but I think more as a comorbid aspect of ADHD and bipolar, but um, I think it's still valid. But in between this executive dysfunction, binge drinking, not being on medication, the stress of uni, um, going on antidepressants, which uh, a common way of people finding out they have bipolar is they go on antidepressants and the antidepressants cause a manic episode. So while that did not happen immediately, um, things were really mounting around my 21st. I took six months off school cause it was too much, went home, came back, lasted about another six months. And I think we'll get into this another time, but I had a full blown manic psychotic episode mid Mid 2011, so it actually it's just past the 10 year anniversary of I've had some similar episodes, but not to the level of psychosis and mania that I experienced at that time, and I scared 
a lot of people. Um, I wrecked a lot of friendships. I scared a lot of people. I scared my family and I scared myself. Um, I was hospitalized for two weeks. Um, and from that, we'll, we'll get more into that in another time because I think it's its own thing to unpack. But I actually recovered fairly quickly and I was pretty keen to get back out there. So uh, I'd been hospitalized and, and two weeks prior, I was a gibbering maniac that was drooling and not sleeping and, and talking all sorts of delusional crazy shit. And then weeks later, I was figuring out my next semester of uni. So, I mean, I think a lot of that was driven by like, perfectionism and all sorts of things hang ups there but I did it I did it I went back in 2012 I moved back to Queensland I finished my degree um, I was in a relationship at that time I was living on the sunny coast and I was loving it but um the job prospects out there unfortunately were pretty stale so in 2013 I moved to Brisbane to do my honors in psychology and I tell you what that was both of those were very, very, very bad choices. Not because there's anything inherently wrong with Brisbane, so to speak. Yeah, sorry, no shade, but um, I've got a lot of people who will be listening to this who are from Brisbane, so enough said. Um, look, being a coastal boy and enjoying that my whole life and then moving into city suburbia during this time so uh, honors was a next step up in needing to be self-directed and just intense immense pressure and uh, i'd started a job that was so by this time i'd been working in disability support for three four years by now four years and i was already burnt out with it to be honest and that job was just so stressful and then on top of the stress of doing an academic thesis and coursework and stuff. And then, and then my supervisor quits just around the halfway through the year mark. And my new supervisor, who's a statistician by trade, informed me that it was statistically impossible for me to get a, um, an actual P is less than 0.05 result. Like I would not have the statistical power because of the way the experiment was designed. We won't get into it. But essentially, he sat me down and said, look, maybe you should come back next year. <laughs> I'd just been involved in a car crash because I hadn't slept for four days. And I was so stressed out of my mind that I actually rear-ended someone. And that was a month after my insurance lapsed. So I had bailiffs and debtors at my door, stickering everything of mine and my girlfriend's at the times. Um and then I had, uh, because of some issues with my payroll in my previous job, I had a Centrelink debt. So I was barely affording to live. I was not enjoying Brisbane because I was not enjoying being stuck in a hot, humid box without the beach nearby, um, which I really hated and struggled with the entire time I was there. I had multiple debtors after me. I'd crashed my car and my supervisor had left me high and dry. And you know what? It was just... I don't have the conf didn't have the confidence and assertiveness I do now, which isn't much to begin with. But yeah, I was just a wreck, and I just took it all lying down. Um, and that, unfortunately, all that ended kind of was a you know a bit of the end of that relationship there. So twenty fourteen to twenty seventeen was when I realized that I had bipolar disorder, and I had a lot of issues with depression during that time 2014 to 2016 probably definitely probably definitely the worst period of my life without a question just really severe chronic depression look i got to go to a lot of gigs and going back to the sunny coast days through this and through to today being able to go to gigs and concerts like i've seen a lot of really really good bands and those were key experiences in just really giving me a bit of framing and perspective that hey my life matters and has meaning still and i made a lot of really good friends in brisbane who i still miss to this day um, i had a lot of good experiences up there but especially around 2015 to 2016 i got into a relationship that was fairly toxic 
Uh, my workplace environment was pretty hectic. Like my job was just, whew, yeah, I won't go too much into that, but um, I really fell into a bit of a hole there for a couple of years and I was a bit of a, I was, I was pretty bad to be around, pretty erratic, pretty heavily depressed. And one of the things I think the reason that I have such a, a, a layover of that perfectionism or self-criticism or self-flagellation is that that's actually what carried me through that time being really militant with exercise and things like that was what held space for me in a time where I was really struggling but yeah suffice to say 2014 to 2016 worst worst period of my life without question um I finished my master of social work in 2017 um, and 2017 is when I met, met and got with my partner who I've with, been with for over four years now. And she's lovely and love of my life, soulmate, absolutely. And we have a nice, wonderful cat son, Butters, together here in Wattle Glen in Melbourne. Oops, I've just given away my relative location. Oh, well, <laughs> you can't find me. Um, yes, so things started looking up after that period of just desolate desperateness um in okay now i've got a master of social work i've got a bit of, bit of a meal too because the thing is to be perfectly honest with you guys i got a pretty okay score in the end with my honors i spent four years applying to every university in australia and didn't get into masters for a single one of them um or the five plus one pathway i'll let you look that stuff up on your own time so i couldn't get in any way shape or form to become a psychologist which was my goal originally um anyway enough said about that so i'd done a master of social work and honestly the the practical the practicum side of it i loved it i hated being very poor during the practices practicums and it was to the detriment of everyone around me and i think people around me who survived with it through me but social work is just a better fit for me i as you can probably tell from the start of the episode, I've got a very, I do have a very psychologically minded theoretical orientation in general. I really like biopsychosocial models, but I'm at heart, I think I'm a social worker, you know, empowerment, advocacy, self-determination, um, looking at things within systems approaches. And a lot of the podcast is going to uh, focus on that. But anyway, so it's a much better fit. It was a much better meal ticket. I mean, I going back again. So my between my undergraduate and my honors, the most that got me was uh, a role that you could get with a Cert two, Cert three at TAFE. However, it was my knowledge gained from the psychology degree that did help me get a promotion. So, you know, swing some roundabouts. Ultimately, though, if I had my if I had the gift of foresight and I had my time again, I would have just done a bachelor of social work honestly yeah no shade on APAC or or actually shade on APAC in psychology because that those two degrees the undergrad and honors were criminally insane they were brutal and there was no practical component in my degree it did not equip me with the interpersonal skills I would have needed thankfully throughout this entire time that I'm talking about in my adulthood I was working in human services field, outpatient, mental health, uh, disability support work. Had I not had that? Nope. So anyway, um, that brings me to 2018, which is by which time my partner and I had got the fuck out of Dodge out of Brisbane because it was just, it was the humidity. It was 90% was the humidity, just couldn't not tolerate it anymore. Um, so we moved down with my partner's folks to King Lake for a bit. Then we moved to Northeast Melbourne to where we are today. And so what have the last few years been? The last few years, um, I've been working in the housing sector, which boy, howdy, let's just say if you can work in the housing sector, in the human services profession, you can work anywhere. Um, I've learned a lot. It's been wild. Um, so I've been working in the housing sector. I've recently got that new role that I was talking about. Um, I would say that this backlog of just having to survive for so long while also pushing me for so long, I was burnt out before I even finished 
my undergrad and I seriously think that burnout persisted all the way through to graduating uni and all the way through my current job to today. I think I'm a pretty chronically burnt out (laughs) husk of a man, you know, like in my professional life, my occupational life, I have seen some shit. I have seen some shit literally quite a few times, but I digress. Why I wanted to frame that was because I wanted to speak about the trajectory of my mental health and my recovery journey. And as of today, as of here right now, I actually think I'm finally starting to hit a bit of a turning point with the cessation of lockdown, with getting use of my hand back, with getting a new career opportunity, with all of the therapeutic work that I've been doing, with all the coaching work I've been doing. Um, with all the sort of, I guess, contemplation and reflection that we've had during the lockdowns, I really do believe that this trajectory is, I'm not, I have no, no illusions that it's going to be, oh, life's all fun and bubbly now. But I definitely believe that it's something everyone's commented on your thirties is when you, you know, really sort of start finding yourself. And to be honest, around 30, turning 30 was when my depression was the worst it's been in years the last couple of years have been fucking rough but that said i think that things are starting to sort of mellow out and hit a point of a a nice period of recovery not so much recovery recovery as a concept it will talk about recovery it doesn't mean the cessation of symptoms it doesn't mean ameliorating your mental illness and being diagnosed with things like bipolar and adhd they're not treatable. They're not curable. You can manage them with medication, um, for which I'm actually missing some because my psychiatrist, who I finally had, has dropped off the map and now I can't get a repeat script. And if you have ADHD, you have to wait a very long time at the moment because they have long wait lists. So that's another thing. That's another reason why we're an hour in. And I've said I'm an R about 400 times. I don't have that medication to support that part of my brain. which was another reason that I was going to put this off, but it's going to be a few months into next year before I even get that. So I figured I would have a discussion today about my trajectory and my mental health journey, and that's going to be interwoven throughout the topics of this podcast. But it's, of, of course, I will be kind of anecdotally weaving it in there, but I will be speaking a lot more to sort of evidence-based practice i'll be speaking to other people's stories i want to hear other people's mental health stories as they relate generally to their daily experience but also um, i'm setting the scene with my mental health kind of behind the gm screen because it's the context for which the entire podcast is going to be based so i just talked about myself for an hour straight and hopefully future episodes will be better edited less long-winded less tangential but i did feel a need to speak positively and honestly to my experience over the lifetime because it informs who i am now it informs what we're going to talk about in the podcast in the next episode we're actually going to speak a little bit more we're going to speak a little bit more to the fun side of my life Uh, we're going to speak more to hobbies and leisure and my relationship and development with those over time in a fair bit less of a kind of psychopathology sense but that can't be discussed or framed within the context of this podcast without me having an honest chit chat about my mental health my the neurological you know my unique wiring and makeup and experience Again, we're complex beings in a complex environment and I really want to, I guess, valorize and empower myself and other people with a mental illness. And I don't think we primarily, I think we can do that, a lot of that through um, employment and education and civic participation. But I actually think there's a lot of benefit and health and well-being and confidence and social skills development and rapport and mastery and an overall existential 
sense of a meaningful life to be gained from things that in our culture we often kind of downplay as not important, which is leisure, which is having fun, which is um, having hobbies and interests. So hopefully I haven't chewed your ear off, which I think I have. But look, this is kind of an experimental run, this one. I'll be putting this up on podcasting platforms. If you've enjoyed this, please do check out my other links. So facebook.com slash inner strength check for Facebook. I'm not that active on it at the moment, but now that I've got some content going, I think I will be. Uh, Twitch.tv slash inner strength check. Again, haven't been too active, but I do a lot of Rocksmith based streams and a lot of gaming streams. I will be doing some talks like this over Twitch. Uh, that are a little bit more impromptu as well. You can also check out my website, innerstrengthcheck.com, where this will be hosted, as well as some blog content, some Let's Plays, so that we'll, we, we're going to be have a whole bunch of topics. We're going to have some topics on mental health, topics on leisure and hobbies, and those broader level talks and discourse and conversations. There'll also be some live streams and some recorded videos of me gaming, uh, solo board gaming, uh, video gaming, reviewing things, listening to music, playing music. So a pretty dog's breakfast of a podcast and hopefully future content will be a little better edited. But um, if you've stuck around this long, you're brave and probably a little crazy yourself but uh you know there's two types of people the diagnosed and the undiagnosed i say so with that it's a sunny afternoon i'm gonna go and do stuff like exercise and junk have a great day and good mental health to you